2014, the Ash Center hosted a seminar with the Harvard Innovation Lab titled Harvard University's Tech for Democracy Movement. All panelists featured were Harvard alumni or current students. Panelists and their startups were Matt Morgan with Shoutabout, Christina Garmendia with Opportunity Space, Seth Flaxman with TurboVote, and Gaurav Kurthi with Dialectic. The seminar was moderated by Professor Arkan Fung of the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. Well, thanks everyone for uh, joining us this afternoon uh, for our panel discussion of technology and democracy. My name is Arkan Fung and I uh, teach here at the Kennedy School and uh, help coordinate some of the Ash Center's democracy events. And I'm proud to co-host this event with the Technology for Change student group as well as the iLab. And before we kind of really get into things, I wanted to hand it over uh, quickly to Megan Mahoney, who is our iLab counterpart and helped, uh, helped, was instrumental in designing the event. Thank you very much, Arkan. And I'll be really quick. I just want to introduce myself. I'm Megan Mahoney. I'm the assistant director of the Harvard Innovation Lab. Does anybody here know the Innovation Lab, or have you been over there? So everybody does. Okay, so I don't have to totally do my spiel. We're a resource on campus where students can take their entrepreneurial ventures as far as they can go. Uh, and the joy of my job is I get to work with all of the social entrepreneurs at Harvard, who at this point, uh, particularly in our residency program, make up about 30% of the students who are passing through our doors. So that's 30% of students who want to start ventures at Harvard, want to start businesses that make a meaningful impact on the world. And it's been really exciting to see how that impact has in recent years blended with uh, democracy, with civic action, um, and with the Kennedy School in particular. So it's been a, you know, great fun to uh, co-create this event together. Uh, I would say I played a very minor role. Uh, but I'm excited that you get to talk to some of these students and former students who are here. You know, I've known Matt and Christina for my entire time here now at Harvard. They're some of our longest standing residents. And they're doing really incredible things. So I'm going to keep it short here so you can listen to them. But thank you all very much for coming. And you know, please stop by more events at the iLab. We host workshops two times a week and have a lot of events. And I think you'll see some of them at future events at the iLab as well. Great, thank you very much. So this event is uh, part of our series in the Challenges to Democracy uh, seminar and workshop series at the Ash Center. And the Challenges to Democracy series is an opportunity to explore uh, different challenges to democracy, such as inequality, the problem of money in politics, the problem of uh, political capture, uh, we've looked at immigration and diversity and assimilation issues and themes about presidential power as well. Today we turn our sights on uh, a very different topic, which is the possibilities and challenges that technology, and especially digital technology, poses and creates for better democratic governance. In the early days of inter the internet, I think there were a lot of people who thought that the internet would save democracy by uh, allowing everybody to become their own printing press, by uh, kind of disempowering large institutions in favor of hundreds of millions of individuals, of uh, making uh, the very fact of organization irrelevant and, and kind of a, a creative anarchic spirit. Um, I think, as I said, those were kind of the early days of the internet. I don't think uh, 
too many people accept those utopian views about the necessary connections between the progress of digital technology on one hand and democracy on the other and instead you know we realize that democracy has all of or that digital technology has all these downsides for democracy as well it may kind of create our own in Eli Pariser's words filter bubbles where you know if I google Barack Obama I get one set of results and if my very conservative father-in-law googles Barack Obama he gets a very different set of results because Google knows what we want to hear and kind of tells us those things right and if Google is a main news source that's a big problem for American democracy if we're all reading different kinds of news uh, instead but that's not to say that de technology digital technology doesn't have the possibility to do very very good things for democratic politics and the construction of our institutions but it's not gonna be automatic it will come in fits and starts there will be steps forward and steps backward and um, Weber uh, Max Weber once uh, he wrote uh, famously that politics is the strong, the slow and hard, the slow, strong boring of hard boards, right? It's like drilling holes through very hard wood. And I think that uh, as you're about to learn, or you may know already, technology startups are a little bit that way, especially when it comes to civic technology. It's very hard work. It requires ingenuity and insight um, and uh, a lot of perseverance and effort. There's this uh, far from a magic bullet, but it, um, but it has a lot of potential. And the main purpose of this afternoon is to showcase uh, efforts from students and alumni from Harvard University. Uh, and uh, these folks are launching some of the most interesting and promising efforts in the civic tech world. There's a lot, a lot of talk about civic tech, and it's very much formative. It hasn't kind of crystallized. There has, I think it's fair to say there is no Facebook or Google or Twitter of civic tech yet. And so we're all kind of wondering what that looks like. It may be one of the folks on this panel or some, some of you in the audience. Um, but we, we really want to explore that. And we want to kind of investigate that question in conjunction, as is um, normal for, for uh, technology efforts and startup efforts, with real projects on the ground. People actually trying to do stuff in this space and share experiences and figure out where the successes have come and talk about uh, some of the challenges. Um, so there are a lot of uh, people working on different startup efforts, and we could only, uh, we can't kind of, uh, feature all of them on the panel. So we have this afternoon kind of four people on the panel, but right after the panel and the Q&A discussion, we'll have a little bit of a, a show and tell, a little bit of a demo effort uh, in which uh, additional tech, civic tech startup efforts uh, will be scattered around the space and you'll be able to, they'll demo some of their uh, work and you'll be able to see and learn and participate in some of that. Um, one additional point for today, you might have seen or participated in a tweet chat hosted by Allison Flint and the Tech for Change group. Uh, hopefully you got a chance to do that. We collected some uh, good feedback and participation in that and we'll probably kick off the Q&A and discussion with some of the online participation uh, so we get a chance there. Let me just briefly introduce the people on the panel. Uh, Seth Flaxman is... Um, 
Seth was a, a student of mine, uh, and I'm, I'm very, very proud of that fact. He's a, a 2001, uh, 2011 MPP grad. In 2011, he, along with Katie Peters, was honored as one, uh, in Forbes magazine as one of the 30 under 30 in the field of law and, uh, law and policy for his work on TurboVote. Seth is also a Draper Richards Kaplan entrepreneur and an Ashoka fellow. He'll tell you a lot about TurboVote in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Christina Garmandia was also a student of mine much more recently than, than Seth, or a little bit more recently. She is co-founder and chief knowledge and research officer for Opportunity Space, which is a project that grows out of her uh, policy analysis exercise. So if you thought that your PAE wasn't good for anything, it might um, make you rich and famous in, in the course of time. Christ <laughs> Christina is a 2013 MPP grad who is very passionate about maximizing the social impact of real estate investments and sees digital technology as a way to, um, to really help the public sector actors do much, much more with real estate resources that they already control. In 2014, she was recognized as one of the top 40 under 40 emerging ur uh, urban leaders in Next City Vanguard. Gaurav uh, Kirthi is a pilot with the Singapore Air Force and is launching a project called Dialectic. He has uh, coached world-ranked debate, student debaters, written a book, and co-created and hosted an Emmy-nominated TV debate show. And he's hoping to bring some of the excitement and dynamics, but especially reason, I think, of um, debate, the reasoned exchange of, re of uh, arguments and justifications to... Um, the uh, public discussion on the internet of uh, news articles and the comment spaces, et cetera, and he has a really exciting project about that. And last but not least, Matt Morgan is a founder and co-founder and president of Shoutabout. Matt will graduate next month from the MPP program, um, and uh, he has previously worked for the American Red Cross. In 2005, Matt, or, I'm sorry, dates are uh, eluding me today. In 2012, Matt was recognized by Forbes as uh, a 30 under 30 winner in law and policy. And he'll tell you more about Shoutabout in a moment. So why don't we kick it off with Seth? Great. Um, so thanks for the wonderful introduction. How, how much time do you want us to do per intro? About five, five okay. seven minutes. All right, sure. Um, so I uh, uh, graduated in 2011, actually started uh, TurboVote. Um, while I was in sort of towards the end of my first year in the MPP program. Um, and I think, uh, actually, I'm just curious, who here has a startup they're working on right now? So like around a third, maybe, a quarter of the people here. Um, I think uh, grad school is a great place to start something. Um, so uh, if anyone else has not started anything and thinking about it, doesn't get easier after grad school. <laughs> um, this is now a pretty good time. No one's expecting you to make any money. Um, people will respond to your emails most of the time. Um, so I, I'm, I was very personally motivated by a vision of what our democracy could be um, that is so far from the current reality that it's, it's a, it feels almost uncomfortable for me to say it out loud. But I, I want a democracy where everyone votes in all of their elections with more information than ever before. And that, for me, is what motivates me. Um, and for TurboVote, the, the, the tool we're building is, in a sense, just biting off the low-hanging fruit of making that vision possible. 
um, making voting easy and seamless like everything else we do in, in the internet age. Um, but uh, just to just sort of describe uh, actually what we do, um, technically our nonprofit's name is Democracy Works, which is a little confusing. TurboVote is our website. Uh, actually named by Archon when I first gave him, told him what I wanted to do. He was like, oh, well, it's called TurboVote. And I was like, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and, uh, but, but the idea of Democracy Works is to make voting easy and seamless for everyone. Um, and we started out by building this website, TurboVote. And the, the goal of that platform was that anyone should be able to sign up one time online and then get all of the help they need to stay registered to vote and voting in all of their elections for the rest of their life. So a voter-centered designed uh, voting system. Um, and what that means in terms of our operations is, you know, you sign up, we track your election calendar, school board, primaries, presidential. Um, if you need to register to vote uh, or vote by mail, um, Vote by mail is a big thing in 32 states. Everyone can vote by mail. You don't need an excuse like in Massachusetts, um, but you still need an application. So if you want to register to vote or vote by mail, we'll fill out that form for you. We'll mail it to you with a pre-addressed, pre-stamped envelope. Uh, then we'll text you a reminder to send it in by the deadline. Uh, and if you're voting by mail, then you know we'll remind you to send your ballot in on time. And if you're voting in person, we'll remind you to, you know, tomorrow's your school board election. Here's where your polling place is. Um, and now with states that have more restrictive ID laws, we'll also tell you what ID you need to bring um, and help you navigate the sort of new legal uh, ecosystem there. Um, and, but then this year, we actually started our second program, which is very exciting because we've always seen ourselves as needing to work with government if we actually wanted to modernize voting for everyone. TurboVote, in a sense, is everything you can do before you work with government. You know, where can we just take out friction by providing you the form or giving you some info? Um, and now we are starting a program uh, where we're building tools that we want to sell to local election officials uh, so that they can improve voting for their voters. Uh, U.S. is the, like, the only country in the world where voting is run at the county level and not the federal level, uh, which is one of the reasons why our technology is so uh, backwards and no one's like building good tech for county governments because there's a lot of money there. Um, so uh, what we're building is a tool called Ballot Scout. And um, it is going to, for the first time, allow county offices to track the ballots that they mail their voters in the mail. Right now, if you vote by mail, your county clerk has no idea where your ballot is in the postal system. Um, they're not using sort of the standard postal system barcode tracking. Um, and it makes it impossible for you as the voter to know, like, didn't they send my ballot? Like, is it lost somewhere? Or has it been returned? Um, so we're going to be uh, rolling that out with 10 counties this year, and then long term we'll be incorporating that data that we get into the main TurboVote platform so that if you're you know, voting through our system, you can also then get sort of notifications that your ballot's been received by the election office, things like that. Um, so anyway, that, that's an overview of our program, so I'll, I'll leave it there and we can talk more later. Hi, everyone. Uh, Opportunity Space is a information platform for information regarding government-owned real estate. So it's a missing part of the market. It's kind of been left out. Um, but governments are one of the largest landowners in this country. Um, in the cities that we're working in now, no one's ever actually done a count of how many buildings are in the public portfolio. Uh, basically, governments don't know what they own. Um, and so for any given city, 
they own about 10 to 30 percent of the land area. Um, and it's crazy, but most governments don't have a real estate strategy. So they have a planning department to help them think about how land use should be throughout the city, but not exactly for how the city itself should use their, uh, their real estate portfolio to achieve their policy. So um, you know, one thing we also want to do is help make the engagement process for the citizen, for the developer, for the potential investor easier with government. Right now that process is extremely frustrating. Um, and, but before we get there, we actually had to clean house. So because most governments don't know what they own, um, we have to create that inventory ourselves. Um, so that's kind of the big challenge that we're facing. Um, so like Arkan said, uh, we started Opportunity Space, me and my co-founder Alex here at the Kennedy School. Um, in the process. So we used our PAE um, as basically market research for this company. So it's, that was a great opportunity uh, for us. And what we did was we worked very closely with one government client to really understand the status quo. So what is the real property management process? And where are the opportunities for technology and information to really improve that process? Um, so um, right now we're in our pilot program, so we're a year old, and so we've been in, we're in five cities in our pilot program, so we're trying to do a, a slow build. Um, and right now we're in, we've been launched in Louisville, Kentucky since uh, January, and we're, in, we're about to launch, uh, actually next week, our platform in four Rhode Island cities. And Rhode Island has been an interesting adventure um, and real estate is a particularly interesting area for governance because it is so fraught with corruption. So in two of the cities that we worked in, we were working in in Rhode Island, their mayors have gone to federal prison uh, for <laughs> real estate mishaps. Um, so we're in Central Falls. Central Falls came out of a receivership just recently. They were one of the first municipalities to go into bankruptcy in 2011. Um, as well as Pawtucket, Providence, and Cumberland. And so we're, like I said, about to launch that next week. And my role at the company is to do the client management. And so we've been finding, so the basics of what we do is we aggregate data that governments already collect about their real estate portfolio. Um, and then we create kind of a wish list of, we have a real property data standard that we've developed in consultation with the GSA. Um, and this, this reform, this real estate management reform, is happening at the federal level right now as we speak um, as well. So creating a data standard um, is a, a core part of what we're doing so that uh, we can communicate across jurisdictions um, and really create performance measurements for how, what's, you know, what is good management of real estate assets look like for government? And we know a little bit what it looks like for corporations, efficiency, 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 but governments aren't like that. There's a social value for what they do. Governments support real estate investments like the, the market cannot support, like affordable housing. So, um, so we aggregate the data that about inventories, incentives, and development plans um, so that the private market can better integrate and collaborate with government on the kind of investments that we want to see in our communities. Thank you. Uh, can you guys hear me okay through the microphone? Uh, thanks for putting together this panel. 
and thanks everyone for attending. It's good to see support for Civic Tech. Um, I am a huge news consumer, and I've been a huge news consumer for a long time. Um, I read The Onion more than I care to admit, but there's a lot of other good stuff that's out there. Um, when we first started... <laughs> uh, call, call it what you will. Uh, we, uh, we started Shoutabout in 2011, so we've been working on this startup for a long time now. When we first started, we were actually a destination site. Uh, we intended to be very similar to Reddit, uh, and our core premise was basically, you have all these great articles that are shining a spotlight on issues that are very important. Uh, opinion articles, uh, legitimate sort of fact-finding uh, news or explainer journalism. There's a whole sort of uh, spectrum of news out there. But the core challenge is that uh, oftentimes we would read about uh, things and then get very frustrated, and we had no idea what we could do. Uh, we called it the enthusiasm gap when we first started. Uh, so effectively, you could go to the comment section afterwards and you could engage in a pretty... Uh, ridiculous debate, and Garav will talk more about that. Uh, another thing that you could do is share on Facebook or on Twitter and sort of uh, help to build awareness about the issue. But at the end of the day, why write about something that's important and shine a spotlight on it uh, if in the end you're actually not empowering people to engage meaningfully uh, with that issue? Uh, so we, uh, we built this out, uh, again, uh, uh, destination site style. You could share articles and rate the importance of the articles and then actually crowdsource links to learn more or take action. And we built it. We spent eight months building it. Uh, I recruited some co-founders, and we found after doing all that work, uh, the world did not want another destination news site. And so we went back to the drawing board. Uh, what we are now is a widget that embeds directly beneath news articles that accomplishes the same function. Uh, we've worked with a number of news sites. Uh, I'm actually pleased to say that Yesterday, we passed the 10 million load mark, so we have some decent traffic now, and um, we, uh, and next month, I'm pleased to say, we'll be at about 5 million per month, so we're really trying to get our claws in and, and make this a scalable thing. Uh, our, our tool allows any nonprofit to share links to learn more or to take action. It makes it easy for nonprofits to educate and mobilize people through very targeted contextual links beneath articles. It's an opt-in system, so they can share links that are relevant. They can track impact, how many people engage with that. Uh, readers get a better reader experience uh, in the process. They're actually shown uh, ads or links that are shared that are not simply just Taboola or Outbrain, uh, uh, which you guys may be familiar with, uh, weight loss, uh, you know, whatever else you can imagine. <laughs> Again, the ad space beneath articles is not particularly renowned either. Um, and then... Uh, for the news sites, we help to generate revenue, we help to create just a better reader experience, and we provide analytics that are very, uh, we think, valuable for, for people. So I'd be happy to talk more about the actual model. I think it's helpful to see what we do, um, so I'd be happy to, to talk to you. We'll be back in the corner uh, for our demo later on, but thank you. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming out. Um, I'll start with uh, to echo Seth's comment. Uh, when you're in grad school, it's the best time to think about doing a startup for two reasons. One, uh, you can be unemployed and it's perfectly fine. And two, the more important thing is you have access to the smartest people ever, and all they want to do is hang out and have coffee and chat with you about interesting ideas. So I met Professor Fung. Uh, I never took a class of his, uh, but I randomly emailed him. and I was like, hey, I've got this idea. I know this is a space you're in, and I'd really love to get some like feedback on it. And he's like, sure. Let's hang out. And we chatted for a while, and it was fantastic. And I've been doing this with professors, with students, with people in this space, and it's just great input all the time. 
Um, so now bridge to what I actually do. Uh, I am the least successful on this table in that I've not actually launched anything yet. Uh, we have a working prototype, and the big idea, the kind of big, hairy, audacious goal that I'm trying to achieve is I think the space beneath an article is so poisonous that it just destroys the value of online discussion. And that idea of participatory, deliberative democracy, where you have a great conversation that's productive, that achieves something at the end of it, that's kind of lacking in all platforms that I've seen. And I thought I could try and bring what I know about debate in the real world to debate online. Um, and fundamentally, democracies require some level of disagreement, but they require a way to handle that disagreement productively and respectfully. And I feel like when you get to 1,000 comments or 8,000 comments, you have a lot of people who want to chip in. But there's no way to understand what's happening in that conversation. Uh, and the way that's currently done is if everybody in this room has a conversation, you know, you raise your hands one by one, and then I'll write down the questions one by one chronologically, and then we try and figure out what 50 people said just by reading 50 different lines of text. So I found that idea unproductive, and I thought I could add data analysis and debate structure to this conversation. So if you had a bill that you were debating, for example, you'd start with the big question, should this bill be supported or opposed? Uh, and if you're a legislator, this is of great importance to you. The comment section would then parse through each comment or create a structure where the comments can be added into it. And you could see who supports it, who opposes it. And then you could further split. So people who support the core of the bill, but for example, there's strong opposition to Clause 15 and Clause 17, and that becomes a little debate on itself. And so from somebody who's not involved in the debate, immediately you get a sense of, OK, so generally this audience opposes the bill, or supports the core of the bill, but opposes these two clauses. And if you're a legislator, you, know, you now know where to put your e effort. You now know where to start amending things, where to start swinging things over. So it gives you some productive feedback. If you're a random viewer, it gives you a great way to see what the conversation is out there. That's the first part to it. Uh, my long-term goal for this project is not to replace every commenting plugin on the internet, but in areas where there are disagreements to be had, get a way to have those disagreements productively, constructively, respectfully, rationally. And uh, it's, it's a long journey. I know that people stay in filter bubbles, as, as Professor Fung said. You'll end up staying in your filter bubble. So people who are on Fox will never actually go to CNN comment sections. But if you could have a platform that pulls in comments from Fox and pulls in comments from CNN and then puts them into this space, you now get a sense of where people from opposing ideals who would never actually talk to each other, what they feel about the same issue and where those disagreements are. And you see where the voices are coming from and where the, the heated debates are. And it's good for you to know where the heated debates are and where the kind of the voices are missing. There might be areas where there's an important voice to be heard, but nobody wants to speak up. And maybe that tells you something as well. So that's the direction I'm going in. Um, it's been interesting and it's been very challenging. So the Kennedy School has fantastic resources in the form of professors and other students. Um, it has been challenging in that there are not enough people who have depth of knowledge in technology, but that's where the iLab comes in. Uh, and it's been fun hanging out with people at the iLab and just kind of chatting with them about where I'm taking this tool, what I'd like to do with it, and just getting some feedback about what's possible, what's not possible, and where I can take it. So both the resources have been absolutely fantastic. That's so great. That's it. So uh, thank you very much, you guys. I wanted to open the discussion with a, a few uh, observations and then uh, see what we got from the Twitter chat. Um, 
the first kind of observation is an observation about why civic technology is so hard. I think getting civic tech right is um, at least twice as difficult as having a successful for-profit startup. Um, and the reason is that, you know, you think about any of the for-profit startups that have done really, really well, and they do really well by making your individual life a little bit easier, right? So Netflix wins because it's a lot better to press a button on the website than it is to go to trudge through the snow to Blockbuster and look for a movie that isn't there and get some uh, less good movie that you didn't want to see anyway, but you're already at the video store, right? You'd just rather do Netflix. Now, Civic Tech, in order to be successful, has to do that. It has to satisfy some individual demand, but it has to do something civic as well, right? So it has to have two ends simultaneously, and that's very hard to accomplish, right? Um, and all of these um, startup projects have that in common, is that they're aiming at both of those things, to make kind of individuals' lives better at the same time that they're trying to solve a democracy or a society problem. Um, so I think that, you know, people often think civic tech is just like the for-profit startup world. I don't think it is. I think there's a lot of disanalogies, and it's important to keep those in mind. Otherwise, they're going to be problems for you. Um, now, I think another uh, aspect of civic tech that is well, well exemplified on this panel is that, uh, is that everybody on the panel really, really knows their area extremely well, whether, you know, it's kind of real estate, you know, or debate, right, or uh, the voting world in counties and what that's like. And um, it, it's that, that is really, really important to have a deep, deep substantive knowledge about the area that you're trying to solve that has nothing to do, oftentimes nothing to do with technology, right? Oftentimes building the platform is the easy thing. It's understanding the substantive problem that's the really difficult thing. So, you know, um, in uh, Apple computer, oftentimes, you know, the designers at Apple and the engineers, uh, Johnny Ivey especially, said, you know, we, th we think about glass for about two years before we build just glass. Or uh, in the early days, titanium. We just think about titanium for two years, just to really understand it. And, the, uh, you know, the civic tech world, you've got to, like, think really, really hard and have a deep, deep level of knowledge about this particular area that you want to make a difference in, right? And that's real important. And a third thing that's um, kind of common in this panel uh, that is common, I think, to, to civic tech, tech startup efforts more broadly is that it's always a kind of jujitsu measure, right? So most people who are trying to make voting more easy are trying to federalize the process of elections in the United States, right? That's an institutional change that is a big, big lift, right? That is kind of the, um, the Powell Doctrine approach, right? Overwhelming force. Let's try to change this huge institution. But all of these civic tech efforts, they don't aim at large institutional change. What they do is they take the existing practice for granted and try to build a little measure on top of that that will make things much, much better, right? It's not aiming to build a whole new destination site in the second iteration or change the way that all media uh, articles operate. It's trying to change the comment section, build a widget, 
right? Not trying to take all voting control away from the counties, but try to uh, make things better by enabling the counties to do their job better, right? And so it's um, kind of trying to find the point of leverage that doesn't require you to reform the whole system, but nevertheless produce a huge amount of public value with a little application of pressure. And that, I think that's a, a common pattern in this space, right? It's, it's uh, kind of the winning strategy because as a startup, you, you, you can't change. You can't affect large institutional change. All you can do is try the jujitsu kind of move. Um, but those are just some of the observations that jumped out at me kind of listening to you guys talk. Uh, but maybe I'll turn it over to Allison just for a couple minutes to um, share a little bit about uh, what people wanted to know about on the tweet chat. change here and we're really happy to be co-sponsoring the event with the Ash Center. Um, I'd also encourage all of you if you haven't so far to go onto Twitter and check out the hashtag tech for democracy uh, number four uh, for that and we've had a really great day. Um, there have been nearly 200 tweets by people that have led to almost 500,000 impressions so we're getting a pretty wide reach on this and I thought I might kick off the Q&A with a couple questions uh, that have popped up in the Twitter world. But I think two of the ones that I thought were really interesting was what have uh, your experiences been um, applying for and receiving seed funding for some of your projects? Like if a lot of people out here might be thinking about doing a startup, like where do you look for resources? And then also um, opportunities that might be based on like newly available data spread sort of from the open government movement. So thanks. I think those two are for those two questions are for the whole panel. So anybody who wants to jump in, I, I can start. Um, so uh, I'm I'm glad that was the first question because I actually think that's been one of the hardest things about getting a civic startup off the ground, and it's also one of the topics that you can't really find classes on at the Kennedy School. <laughs> it's too professional or something. Um, but. In terms of our like how we launched, um, we uh, and I I actually think this is a, some some of this is repeatable for a lot of people with startups. Um, and our strategy was to first have a pilot, um, and we raised the money for a pilot. Like we're our pilot probably cost around twenty five thousand, and the money for that came from like a five thousand dollar grant from the Sunlight Foundation and uh, Kickstarter. Um, and Kickstarter is one of the hardest things I've ever done. How much uh, did you get off Kickstarter? Uh, Twenty-six thousand. Twenty-six thousand off yeah. of Kickstarter. But but it's like it's not like the internet adopts you and you get like easy money. It's like it's just a platform where you can. Uh, I mean, Katie and I call it the friends, family, and fools round. Where it's like you can. It's like you can like sort of go one by one and ask people to give you you know fifty bucks, and that's how you slowly inch your way up there. Um, and uh, but anyway, so pilot we really thought was the first stage because then we needed that pilot when we sort of wrote our business plan or our sustainability plan, being a nonprofit. Um, and when we were started to do real fundraising, going to foundations, um, I felt like I needed both of those tools in my tool belt in order to act, sort of raise the whatever the the sort of first real round of funding after the seed round. Um, so for me, the seed round was very focused on getting enough money just to get through the pilot phase and have a successful story that we could talk about. 
And now annual budget, do you want to share that or uh, if you'd rather sure. not? Um, this year our annual budget it will be uh, around $2 million. Um, and uh, around uh, three quarters come from like four or five different foundations, the largest being the Knight Foundation and the Democracy Fund. Um, and the remaining quarter is from earned revenue uh, from partnership fees with colleges and nonprofits. We have around 125 colleges and around 20 nonprofits that pay us annual um, uh, partnership fees to get their students and members signed up for the service. And how many employees give people a sense uh, of scale? 18. It's a real company. <laughs> uh, pretty relevant question. We're raising our seed round now. Um, <laughs> um, so a, a similar story. In, so we're a for-profit, uh, non-profitable for-profit at this point. But um, we've gotten managed to get funding. So we're getting funding from our government clients. Um, and we're doing a small amount, uh, not the true cost um, of doing business with them. Um, but we also got seed funding, so Harvard competitions, so uh, seed, round, seed round came from the I3 challenge uh, last year, and we're in the finals for President's Challenge, so, you know, maybe I'll get something next week. <laughs> and uh, Sunlight Foundation also supported our work in Rhode Island. So for... Us, um, we really had to pull together um, lots of foundations to support our work um, in the our our experiment stage and our pilot programs. So, um, including the Sunlight Foundation, uh, we're in Pawtucket Foundation, Rhode Island Foundation, um, Ocean State Foundation. So basically, every foundation in Rhode Island is interested in anything that could support economic development. So, um, you go to Detroit. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh, let's see, other funding um, for a for-profit civic tech, um, it is a thin market, so it's a very new space. Um, so we have been doing um, presentations to, uh, to seed investors, angel investors, angel funds, and um, they love us, they love what we do, but we do a little too much consulting. We're not just a pure tech, you know, uh, we don't have a hockey stick growth. And, and we know that because we're a little bit ambitious with our goals. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a real challenge for, uh, especially if you're trying to solve a complicated problem that requires policy reform. Um, and so that's, it's definitely a challenge. So still, even if you're a for-profit, foundations are an important source of seed funding. And any amount that you can get from um, clients um, even if you're cobbling it together like we did in Rhode Island, it's a really like a mosaic of funding there. Um, but as far as our approach for, we're now moving away from traditional technology angel investors and actually bringing new investors into this space in the real estate field. So lots of, um, you know, they understand what we're trying to do. And the fact that we're having to do consulting, they're like, you have to, you, you have to, um, it's really awesome that you have to do a little, like I'll have to do a little less engagement with government. That's a real win for me versus, oh my gosh, you have to tell them how to use your platform. So that's the, um, you know, we're still converting. We're working with departments that like a couple years ago were using typewriters. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> Talk about the finance. 
I don't have too much more to add to that. Uh, Sunlight Foundation is an active member promoting links on our site, so I will have to ask them for money. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, I, I would say maybe based on our experience, the advice that I would give to folks that are looking to raise around uh, would basically be to find uh, advocates that know what they're talking about and just care about the mission that you have more so than the, the business model that you've built around it. Uh, I mean, we're a little bit insane still for tackling the space that we're in. We clearly care about it. Uh, but the, the competitors that are occupying the same space underneath news articles, uh, one of them has raised recently like a series C or D round of tens of millions of dollars. And so they're looking at that as purely a tech company that does what they do well. They've optimized for the particular problem of driving revenue for news sites. And so we, uh, we found uh, and, and built our seed round around people who were organizers and political uh, strategists and people who had done consulting in the government and tech space. And uh, ultimately, you know, this was a bet on the mission more than it was on the, the uh, business model. So I have zero dollars. Uh, and I'm, I'm taking a very different approach from them. So I will be most likely building a product that has commercial application as well. So if you, that idea of disagreement, if you can extrapolate instead of discussing a bill, you're discussing the iPhone 7 versus Samsung S5, and then you have that disagreement there on cost, on reliability, on service quality, whatever it is. And that discussion then becomes a product comparison. If you have it on Yelp, you can look at restaurants. So I'm building that to fund it. I don't know if it's gonna be successful, so I don't wanna give any advice, but I just thought building a tool that has commercial viability is one way to get into that market as well as having this important civic text case as well. And this was, again, an idea that was contributed from somebody I met at the iLab, which I had never thought about because my, my passion is democratic debate. I have no idea about product reviews. So. <laughs> I want to add one thing as well, listening to what you guys are saying. Uh, we entered uh, almost every b competition the business plan, this and that, and we lost 100% of them. <laughs> um, and not only did we lose them, we got consistent feedback from judges that this was a bad idea. <laughs> that would never work. <laughs> um, so I, I, my advice would be go do one competition in order to produce a good business plan um, and to like, get that under your belt. But it's really, it's just not a sure way to get money or to like get momentum. And at the beginning, the most valuable resource you have as an entrepreneur is your time. And that is what you have the most control over. And so if you spend all of your time chasing after all of these competitions, I actually think it uh, does more harm than good. I do want to add one thing. There's, uh, there's a new uh, entrant into the, the, the seed round phase, and it's the GovTech fund. Um, so that's just a new entrant. Um, and Hopefully, they'll be doing their first round soon. So there, there, there's more players coming into this space. Is that a deep pocket? What, what's the scope of what, do you have any idea mm. what, the, what they are prepared to, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, you know, they're going to do an investment into um, like a half dozen companies. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, so um, a mine mixer is a recipient of GovTech Fund, so I don't know if you've heard of MindMixer, but so that's the, it's definitely a small space, but there's a few more people walking in Good. the door. Good, and Allison, what, the second question was, could you uh, repose the second question? Um, the second, I mean, you can also open it up to everyone else, but the second question was, 
Right. So, um, I don't know how relevant that is. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it kind of goes into one of the questions you sent to us before about scalability. Yeah. So, um, so Socrata um, is kind of core to our, if we can scale quickly, add government uh, city data in quickly, um, having people use Socrata is a really good thing for us. Um, it doesn't solve the, you know, we can clean the data once we get the data. Um, but yeah, open data is a big part of what we do. Um, and once we, you know, we, um, it's publicly available data that's not publicly accessible. So that's, um, and Socrata will help a little bit with that because it'll, um, but what that requires is for CIOs in governments to have the ability to convince everyone else to use their system, um, which is not true. Uh, solicitor's offices, I mean, especially in real estate, they're old school. They're like, I like my Excel sheet, <laughs> not your Excel sheet. And I'm like, and they want to, yeah, so they, they're pretty stubborn um, and not tech folk. They, so one thing we're hoping to do is actually, oh, you're trying to sell property. Um, you know, you can just, if you use your CIO's Excel sheet, then it'll automatically update to Socrata, which will automatically update to our platform, and you'll never have to do another bit of work. Ah, oh, wouldn't that be great? So um, it's definitely a, it's an important component, um, but there's still the unsexy uh, procedural challenges and the politics. Yeah, and I would add into that that you should be prepared to liberate your own data, your own OpenGov data. Um, and like in 2012, just to give you an example, one of the data sets we need to run TurboVote is, a, is all of the contact information for the 8,000 local election offices across the country because we have, we're pre-addressing these envelopes we send you. Um, and they don't go to the state, they go to the county election official. And so in 2012, we built a screen scraping tool that we internally call Dog Catcher that like literally updates monthly screen scraping Secretary of State websites for local election contact information and turning it into a machine readable format that we can then feed into TurboVote. Um, and we like do tons of this stuff like in order to collect all the data we need, like election dates, um, things like that. It's public, but it's not open in the way that OpenGov really means, where it's like a machine readable format that you can build on top of. So you have to be prepared to do that yourself as a startup. The real world of open data. Yeah. All right, so uh, lots of issues have come up. Kind of questions, comments? Christina. Uh, Christina, I hear from friends in New York that it's not uncommon for a very wealthy developer to just start a project and then get the permits later. Have you thought about looking at that side of the business as well? Pardon? Well, no, just that actual, like, actual huge projects begin and they haven't actually secured any permits. They just start it and then take care of the permits later. That a third, so um, a third of all the money that developers spend on development projects go towards this initial research phase um, and about a third of their projects that they pursue fail. So um, they are spending money um, and so taking a bet Right. Uh, so I think, so your question is whether we should work with developers. Just look at buildings that are being set up. Uh-huh. 
Oh. Okay. Where? <laughs> Anywhere. No, no, we're not working in that space. <laughs> That's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions? And this is to build on what Arkan was talking about earlier. He phrased it as the jujitsu approach to working with government. And I, I, I'm sure a lot of why you're doing what you do is because sometimes it seems that government is going too slow and you want to work around it. Someone explained it to me. Um, someone over at the iLab actually explained it to me as, he phrased it, I loved it, sort of water, you know, going around rocks, right? So you have to connect to and work with the government. And it's, to me, it, it seems like it's a dance that you do with government, right? You want to work around them, but at the same time, you need to work with them. Um, and Archon was describing that. But I was wondering if each of you could just talk a little, about, little bit about your experience of, not even just government, right? Matt, you're working with the news. You're working with old institutions that do what they do. You know, Excel spreadsheets is one form of them, but what has that dance been for you? And how have you had to change your thinking about how you do what you do in, in order to approach the problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah. <laughs> I'll dive right in. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of issues, I think, uh, specific to our space. It's a good question. Um, so I'll, I'll maybe segment it by new sites and nonprofits because we're, those are both sort of in integral to what we're doing. On the new site side, uh, one of the early and major uh, pieces of feedback that we heard was that uh, new sites are very concerned about appearing that like they are not um, editorially independent, like they're endorsing particular causes or actions. Uh, we've talked to, like Washington Post had done a pilot, for example, where they were placing links that they thought were best. And even then, they were getting pushback from other nonprofits that said, why are you choosing them over us? You can imagine, even if they're taking the, the plunge to push forward on something, there's still uh, opportunity to get a lot of flack uh, in, in doing so. Um, so we had to work really, really hard to create a model over time and test it uh, to actually figure out how we could brand the widget and get content placed on the widget. Uh, without actually concerning new sites along, along those lines. There's still been, I would say, a, a very large tension with a lot of the new sites we've worked with between the engagement and business side and the editorial side. And the editorial side still, I think, reasonably supports this and, and believes that. Um, but I think that there's also a culture shift that I think is accommodating for the space that, that we're in, at least. Um, on the nonprofit side, uh, Traditionally, what you might do after a disaster, if you're the Red Cross, I used to work at the Red Cross, uh, you put Google ads up after a major disaster. And so when people are searching for what you're doing or there's sort of earned media, you drive attention to what you're, you're working on. Um, but the whole idea of doing something contextual and specific to a news article is still very new to them. And that's just taken a lot of, again, outreach and education, uh, similar to what you were saying, Christina, just about sort of consulting and working to build a different culture around that. I think the other really interesting thing that we've realized is that there are a lot of big news items that are out there that focus on what we would view to be important issues that we discuss and debate, where there may not be a nonprofit that actually has an opportunity to do anything. And so that raises a whole different question. Like, what? Like, why, why is there some, is it because the space isn't nimble enough to, to, uh, to address it? Is it because, uh, 
I, I mean, I, I would actually turn that into the form of a statement. The space is not nimble enough to necessarily to to create reasonable things. When, when there are reasonable things, Oxfam America is one of our organizations. In the Syria crisis, they mobilized hundreds of people like a, a day after articles on Syria to donate, to sign petitions and things like that. Um, so I think, I think it's just been, uh, it's, it's a process, <laughs> addressing, addressing those concerns. Maybe you could just chip in very quickly. So um, I want to just echo something that Professor Fung said at the start about deep knowledge. I've been working in debate in the real world for a very, very long time, and one thing led to another. So working with high school kids led to a national organization, led to TV shows, led to the Emmy, led to more TV shows, led to a book, et cetera, et cetera. But because I have that depth and that background, people trust that I'm able to represent what I'm talking about. Uh, and it takes a while. It took, it took me a while, so I don't know if this is going to succeed or not. But I think people will have a little bit more faith that it could succeed, at least from the context that I come from, because I've had a background in it in other areas. So even the government's willing to trust me a little bit more uh, because of that. Well, actually, to build off that, because I um, had no credibility um, uh, with government uh, working. Even you know, with an MPP degree? Even with an MPP degree. Can you believe it? <laughs> that shocks me. <laughs> um, and so we, um, part of our uh, jujitsu move, or however you described it before, uh, was that we've always been planning to start building things for government from day one. That's been thing, something my co-founder and I talked about, but we absolutely did not start there. You're starting now, three years in, um, starting to work with government. And it's because we just sort of looked at the facts. Like, government doesn't work with startups almost ever. Um, we don't have credibility with government officials. Um, it's really hard to build that. And so we wanted to start by actually building something that voters could use. Um, as a way to, you know, one, like, build something um, that has, like, a brand that people would recognize, build up our reputation that way with a useful tool that didn't need government interaction, um, and at the same time would raise people's expectations for what government should provide them um, by sort of doing everything we could to make voting easier before we take that actual official step and get the government to adopt it. Um, and now this year we've uh, taken on a project that it, we're using to build up our reputation with government. Um, we are uh, now, uh, this November, if you uh, Google your polling place, um, uh, that data is actually being provided from us. Um, through uh, a grant from Pew Trusts, we are building the only nationwide data set of polling place information this year, then feeding it to Google. And as part of that project, uh, we get to meet election officials in every state. Um, and, you know, in some ways help them streamline their sort of data download process so we can get the polling place information more seamlessly and more automated in future years. Right now it's, uh, it sometimes involves actual physical visits to election offices to get their polling place data, and we're trying to eliminate that. Um, but uh, it's okay to phase in, I guess, over time is the answer. Uh, yeah, back here. Hi guys, I know all of you. Um, so I'm a civic tech entrepreneur as well, and I my experience of pitching to um, nonprofit is that they think, and I, I'm a for-profit company, uh, to nonprofit foundations is that they think I'm a capitalist, and when I pitch it to investors, they think I'm a tree hugger. Um, so I wonder, like, what your experience has been, and how do you think about 
what model do you adopt, whether you're for-profit, non-profit, or even hybrid? So how did you Great come question. up with that decision? Good question. Uh, yeah, so you do talk differently when <laughs> speaking to different people. Um, and I'd say when we're talking to the non, as a for-profit, talking to nonprofit foundations, I mean, it's easy for us to talk about why, like the reason why we're doing this is not for-profit reasons. Um, we believe, you know, we want it to scale and we believe the for-profit model is the best way to scale. Um, and that's why it's a for-profit. So, you know, basically our intentions are pure and good. Um, and so I think that, you know, we've been able to make that pitch successfully and, um, we use fiscal sponsors frequently, um, at, to funnel that money legally, uh, to us. So, um, as far as pitching to, you know, the capitalist world, um, basically we leave out all the soft and fuzzy stuff about, you know, community engagement and we just push forward with the we're like the Zillow for the public sector market <laughs> that you guys forgot about so that's clear um, we had a very long debate about whether we should be a nonprofit or a for-profit and um, I think th there are a few different factors both practical and ideological um, that ultimately influenced us to be a nonprofit and the first was that we couldn't figure out a story where we would have hockey stick revenue, um, like Christina said. Uh, there's no 10 extra turns in helping people register to vote and stay active voters that we could think of. Um, and uh, I mean, one of the reasons why even you know county government doesn't have great te technology is because VCs aren't investing in companies to build good technology for local government because there isn't a ton of money there. Um, and th that, that space is expanding, though. Um, there are more VCs that are angel investors that are interested in it, but it's not, like you said, I can't remember the word you used, but it's like not robust at all. Um, it's very thin. Um, and uh, but the, the other side of it, you know, we did, I think, made a mis mistake. I was like, oh, I can just treat foundations like VCs, um, and they do not know how to be treated. You know, they, do, they do not want to be treated like no. VCs. Foundations have ideas about how they want to improve the world, and then they'll talk to you if you can do their idea. Um, which was a mindset I was not really prepared for. Um, and um, But we've been able to navigate either way. So I, the, in conclusion, I, I still think on the practical side it was right to be a nonprofit because I don't think I would have been successful raising the money we needed uh, from the private sector. Um, and we've been able to from the foundation world. But then in terms of ideological um, reasons, um, you know, we have the pretty crazy idea that um, you know, in 10 years or so, we will, our technology will be the way that a majority of Americans interact with the voting system. Um, it may not have our name on it. It might have, like, a county government's name on it. Um, but we're building what we see as a new piece of infrastructure, public infrastructure, um, for the country. And we wanted that to be owned by everyone um, and not by uh, a small group of wealthy individuals. Um, and so that was also a motivator for us, too. Uh, question, did he? Yeah. So uh, I have a kind of more technical question for Gaurav about the, uh, the dialectic. Um, I'm, I do research in media bias. And so some, something I was interested in was uh, 
kind of what method, uh, what do you use to uh, categorize comments and aggregate them into uh, your your website? I mean, one could imagine that certain topic models um, on supervised machine learning algorithms or supervised machine learning algorithms with you know coders could 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 do these things, or you could just have people categorizing them, you know. So, so I was just wondering, like, what, like, how, like, what the kind of plan was for uh, accomplishing this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of afraid of that. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Any last questions before we move into the demo? Demo phase of the event. What are the effects of uh, the revelations about the NSA and also about the forthcoming possible death of net neutrality in relationship to your technologies? Sort of a hard question. Um, I, I would say from uh, my perspective on it is that what we are witnessing over the past even six months is a huge erosion in public trust in the internet um, in both the corporate and the public sectors um, and so for me uh, it does add an extra um, an extra reason to just be very careful about like making sure our users trust us um, and it reinforces our decision to be a nonprofit as a way to help communicate that trust in terms of what our actual, what like why we're building this to to communicate your intention to your users, and that our intention is to make voting better and not um, anything else uh, is helpful. You know, on on just building on that question a little bit, I think it's probably more relevant for um, for you guys. Is what sorts of assurances are you prepared to make about trust and and user data and where it'll go and where it won't go? I mean, I, I this is prompted by Sess kind of lack of trust remark, which I think is quite right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys want to go. Okay. Or I don't know. It may be relevant to your project as well. It is. I oh, mean, it is. So okay. we collect yeah. user data and user behavior. Oh, um, really? Okay. Because, yeah, that's a value we provide to our government clients is who's looking at what properties. Um, and that's a sign of commercial interest. So um, I do want to, a little bit on your first question. So NSA was good for us because it gave, it was good for us because it gave people a base understanding of what metadata is. And, <laughs> <laughs> educational. Yeah, it had an educational component. Education so, and, funny. you know, the value of how much you can learn from <laughs> data about data. So that got us about 50% of the way there when we're trying to talk about what we do. Um, kind of the nuts and bolts of why do you want to have a data standard? Um, so it was good for us. Contrarian. Uh, it's a hard question. It's a good question. Uh, to the point about uh, personally identifiable information um, in, in the legal sense, uh, that's something that we've had a lot of philosophical conversations about internally. We've been to conferences. We've talked a lot to legal teams about how to make sure that we're balancing a, uh, what we do with a minimal amount of data that we collect. And we're very upfront at every, every point about uh, what the platform is, what we do, what we don't do. 
Um, at this point, uh, we've been able to get away with an absolute minimum. So we don't actually collect any information about the user until they engage with a link. And then we have a real minimal amount there. And it's just for, uh, for some important reasons. And then we collect a, a very basic amount when people sign in and authenticate themselves via social media. Uh, but again, that's only for uh, very particular business processes. And we just try to be very clear about that. Um, that way, even if there's data that's leaked or if someone hacks in or whatever, uh, it's not an issue. We think that's really important for trust. So I'm going to ask an even harder question than what you've asked. Why is it that people want to comment online anonymously? Why are so many people afraid of leaving their name, their email address, attaching their Facebook or Twitter to a comment that they leave on a politically divisive issue? And that's an even harder question. It has nothing to do with the NSA. There is something about the online space that people are a little bit uncomfortable about attaching their name, their identity, their family photographs to a comment that they made about gun control, about abortion, about gay marriage. And that's an even harder question that I'm grappling with. How far does anonymity benefit conversations versus harm true conversations? And that's something I don't know. There's a lot of research on it. The research is mixed. But it's an issue that it's not just who's spying on your comments. It's are you willing to put yourself out there online even if nobody's spying on you? And uh, that's a much more mixed question. Oh, that's great. So uh, before we move to the, the demos, I thought I'd just close with a, a thought um, from the late Steve Jobs talking about technology and social change. And uh, he was talking about the, the original Macintosh. I don't know how many people in this room are old enough to remember that computer. It was, I had one. It was great. Um, uh, and he said that what, you know, the old Apple was about was, you know, the world's going a certain direction. And if you, through a small set of people, usually less than a dozen, can change that vector just by a couple of degrees, it doesn't really look like much at all when you're just starting out, you know, the first few days, the first week, the first year. But, you know, you go a mile or two out, a few years out, and the world is miles different from where it would have been otherwise. And I just, that image of technology and social change has really stuck with me. And that's what these folks are trying to do is change that vector just a couple of degrees in a better direction. And if you can do that, then you wait a while and you will have accomplished a huge amount. So thank you very much.